The views and opinions expressed by the guests of the Inspira podcast do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of any agency of the United States government or any organization, public or private. Welcome to the Inspira podcast, hosted by your girl, me, Erica Mueller-Chen. I'm an international development specialist with over a decade of experience leveraging the amazing power of sport to promote peace and positive social impact. My career has allowed me to live in Europe, Southern Africa, and Latin America. In 2022, I accepted an offer for my dream job in sports diplomacy. And I also became an employee family member to a U.S. diplomat, a.k.a. an EFM. This podcast is all about inspiration and career advice. Each episode, I'll interview an inspirational global changemaker working in sport for development, social impact, or the diplomatic service. This series is perfect if you have interest in breaking into one of these sectors or you've already landed that dream role and are keen to learn from thought leaders. Enjoy today's episode and stay inspired. Oddside has been, I think, just a really fun exploration and really fascinating exploration of how trust-based philanthropy can really look like in practice. This isn't something like brand new to the world at all. We really were pulling kind of from the women's rights, women's fund um, space and experimenting to see what this would look like in the sport context. Welcome friends. Today's special guest is Nicole Matuska. Nicole has positioned herself as a leader in sport for development and peace with a special focus on the rights and voices of girls and women. She has been with Women Win since 2011 and she currently serves as their global girls director. Women Win is considered by many as the global nonprofit leader in gender equity through sport. Nicole brings a journalism degree from Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois, and she received a Fulbright scholarship in 2006 to study women's football when she ended up staying in Morocco, I believe for 10 years, using sport as a tool for girls and young women's empowerment. Welcome, Nicole. How are you today and where are you calling us from? Oh, thanks, Erica. I'm so honored to be on this podcast. I am doing good. I am calling in from right outside of Tampa, Florida, on the East Coast in the U.S. Um, super sunny here today. I have a lot of colleagues in the Netherlands, and it is not <laughs> sunny over there. So really enjoying the sun and weather. Um, yeah, and doing really well. Mm. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for taking a little bit of time with me today for the podcast. I've known you for some time and I'm just thrilled to keep knowing you and keep in touch with you, especially as you've just dug into sport for development and peace, especially this gender equity side of it, which is, of course, incredibly important. And one thing I like to do, Nicole, before we get started, because I've called this podcast Inspira, I like to mention why the guest inspires me. And so aside from the obvious around gender equity and empowerment, I really feel like you, Nicole, as well as your teammates at Women Win have really been innovators in this 
this space and not afraid to experiment or be the first to try things, whether it's engaging girls through esports or really aiming to democratize funding, which I know I'll chat about today. I feel like you all are just paving the way and breaking down boundaries and barriers for people all across the world, which I'm so grateful for and is such important work. Oh, thanks. Those are really kind words. <laughs> well, maybe to kick things off, Nicole, I can invite you to share a little bit more with the audience about your career journey and perhaps what led you to really focus on sport for social impact and gender equity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my journey, I mean, as much as a lot of our journeys in this space probably started out with is that sport had like a huge impact on my personal life. I grew up playing um, almost every sport. I didn't discriminate. I tried them all when I was young and, you know, ended up really falling in love with uh, with soccer, as we call it in the U.S., but football um, and played that a bit more, you know, competitively as I was growing up and kind of took it with me through college and it really, yeah, shaped who I was and um, shaped my friendships and the people I connected with and how I saw the world. Um, but, you know, always kind of took it as something for granted that I was, you know, I grew up in the United States. I could play, you know, I came from a family that could afford to put me on a good team and travel with the sport. And I was just so um, privileged in that way to, to have it so easy for myself. And so after I... Um, graduated from university, I um, was, again, lucky enough to get a Fulbright scholarship uh, and went over to Morocco um, to kind of look at Moroccan women's experience of playing football and understand what that looked like. And yeah, just really opened up a whole new world to me of, um, yeah, where women just had a really hard time at even accessing the, sport, the basics of the sport, even being able to play. It was, you know, it was something I knew, like, I, you know, my privilege wasn't um, everywhere, but I never realized to what extent until I actually traveled um, and interacted with women in Morocco and, and saw the struggle and, and how hard it was um, that they had to work just to play. So that was kind of really what inspired me to, you know, study and dive into sport um, as, a, as a tool for girls and women's empowerment and then just got extremely lucky. It's always like right time, right place, right? Um, where I met uh, Women Win uh, and, and different people from Women Win, Maria, our current executive director, um, some other colleagues uh, and former colleagues, and just got connected to their work while I was in Morocco. And um, yeah, then it's been over 11 years now that I've been with the organization wearing a lot of different hats. But it's, yeah, it's been a wild ride and just some of the most amazing people and work I've ever had the privilege of doing. That's wonderful. And it's so cool to hear about that Fulbright experience and just when it happened in your life, because it sounds like that really changed the trajectory. I mean, of course, you had that passion for sport, but just the two intersecting, right? That access based off of gender and then also access based off of geography and all those different forces that were probably becoming really apparent to you once you were overseas uh, and then making this your life's work. Uh, so before we talk about Women Win, Nicole, maybe I could ask you to share with the audience a little bit more about this gender landscape in sport or in sport for development and kind of any things that you've seen or observed or just kind of what the issues are today? Oh my gosh, that's such a huge question. Um, <laughs> I can't give any sort of like deep historical overview of gender and sport right now. I'm in no position to do that. <laughs> um, 
but I, you know, what's been really interesting in this work and being in it for 11 years, again, it's not something I ever thought like you could make out a career out of or work in this way. I was like, oh, it's something I could volunteer for maybe one day, but was really looking at other opportunities. But once I got involved in this, I mean, just seeing the sort of, I guess, progress and excitement um, of of this space and the intersections of what you just mentioned as, you know, as time has gone from, you know, back in 2007 when women when started to now, it's just been incredible. I feel like we always focus on what still needs to be done around gender equity, which there needs to be a lot, gender equity and inclusion in sports still, but so much has happened already. Um, you know, when women when first started, there were, you know, very few organizations really looking at the intersection of girls and women's rights in sport. Um, you know, sport for development was just coming, um, was coming up as, as something organizations were doing, but, you know, really connecting apart from just girls participation, connecting it to really rights-based objectives and approaches was, you know, very few and far between. Um, and so really seeing those organizations, uh, pop up in different parts of the world um, and focus on that in different places and just grow and strengthen as a movement has really been incredible, um, I would say, in the past uh, 10, 12, 15 years. Um, and just how powerful the sport is. I mean, you know, we started at Women Win really out of this like idea of, you know, when you let girls and women take this public space of, you know, a sport pitch or a street if they're running a 10K or 5K, and you let them be visible and present and in the community that way, like people will see the strength and power that women and girls have. And, it, you know, that has the potential to transform entire communities, um, deep seated gender norms, et cetera. So, um, yeah, we've really seen that in different places. And um, it's just been really exciting to be a part of that, I think. Well, you did well. I know that was a huge, huge question. So just kind of trying to get warmed up here. So no idea. You. No idea if I answered it or. Um, yeah, of course but. you did. And, and especially, as you said, reflecting on just this time you spent with Women Win over a decade and the importance that you and the organization view of keeping a pulse on what's that priority? What are those opportunities that need to be addressed? regarding gender and regarding getting women their voice to be heard and their voice in and out of sports. Um, maybe now thinking about how women win does that, I'd love to know a little bit more of the specifics, whether that's the programming or the initiatives that are running uh, so that maybe the audience can better understand how you and the organization have been able to reach millions of people in over 100 countries. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Women Win has kind of gone on an evolution in the past um, five or six years. And, you know, we started at our roots as a girls rights through sports, um, girls and women's rights through sports. And since then, have kind of evolved into this umbrella organization that now has sort of these three initiatives that we work through to achieve this um, grand vision of girls and women access their, um, and achieve their rights globally. And so just one of those approaches now, we're using sport as just one of those approaches, um, but very much connected to our approach through sport is these two other initiatives, which are looking at economic resilience, um, women and girls, and then looking at democratizing philanthropy, which kind of also bleeds into our other initiatives as well. And so through our, our sports initiative, which is now called Girls, um, 
we have looked at these sort of three levels of impact or three areas of change that we um, work with our partners on the ground uh, and support them to do. So one is at the individual level, which is really this focus on girls' leadership and empowerment through participatory design processes, life skill programs. It's kind of like the bread and butter of sport for development and gender um, programming. The other one is more institutional. So it's working with organizations and institutions on gender equity and inclusion strategies, working with uh, champions within these organizations to transform organizational cultures. Um, and uh, yeah, creating safe spaces, basically transforming sport as a safe space um, with opportunities for girls and women to lead. And the last one is sort of the systemic level systems change. So this is where our onside fund, which I think you're gonna ask me about in a bit, um, this sort of participatory grant making democratized um, philanthropic approaches to funding the space and the movements in this sector. Um, really looking at trying to dismantle these traditional power dynamics in the sector, um, approaching kind of grant making and sport for gender justice through this decolonized um, feminist kind of democratized way. Um, and again, really supporting feminist organizing and movements to leverage sport as a strategy for gender justice. So yeah, these are sort of our three pillars of work or, or streams of work that we've organized ourselves into now. And yeah, like always, um, Women Win, we've never done our own implementation of programs on the ground. We're, we're really here to serve those grassroots organizations doing the work, serve the movements that exist already, serve the institutions that are doing this um, in any way we can, so. Wow. I'm just now remembering every time you and I speak, I feel like I've like taken on this mental journey of figuring out oh, like democratizing philanthropy and economic resilience and just these really huge, important topics that I haven't heard enough in sport for development, which is what continues to impress me about you and women win so much. And I suppose my follow up question to that is just how do you and the team like learn about and become experts in these topics, especially if they haven't really been done a lot yet in the sector? Are there things that you're leaning on researchers? Is it leaning on practice and your own lived experience? Kind of where are you finding those avenues to really have learning opportunities to say, okay, these are going to be the three things that we focus on and let's see how it goes. Yeah, great question. Um, you know, and we don't by any means consider ourselves experts ever. Um, All right. We, well, I do, but it's okay if you do. No, don't. <laughs> no worries. Everything we pull um, in terms of our work and everything we learn in terms of our work really comes from the ground, I would say. Okay. That's primarily the, the place where we um, try to learn and stay as present and focused on as possible. Um, and I'll just give an example, like the onside fund and this kind of sort of democratized way of um, doing philanthropy uh, really came as a result of us bringing together actual experts um, and, and you know, individuals representing grassroots and communities who were doing kind of more feminist approaches to sport for development um, and kind of just posing the question of like, what is the intersection of feminism and sport? What does that look like? How do you all define that? How does the movement or what are the movements that exist within that and how do they define that? And really, it's like we start from a place of just opening up a dialogue and facilitate. You know, I consider us facilitators, I guess, is opening up spaces and facilitating conversations and then gathering what we learn from that to try to create some sort of yeah frameworks or um, systems and supports for that movement to grow for those individuals to succeed um, and get the resources they need. Onside, the Onside Fund is all about getting resources 
resources directly to people and organizations on the ground without a lot of arduous reporting or um, systems related to that, you know, and it's it's based on trust, trusting that organizations and individuals who receive this money and are on the ground know the best way to use those resources uh, way better than we would uh, in any shape or form. So yeah, it's so that's one way is really listening to like organizations on the ground, people who are directly involved in the movements. Um, and then the other way, which I think has served us really well, because the, our leadership and like executive team, as well as just the whole staff, I think we have a lot of people who come from different sectors or have worked at the intersection of different sectors, whether it's like corporate and sport, um, business and women's rights, like all sorts of different you know things outside of just sport for development. And that has brought a lot of like interesting synergies and connections, right? So for example, again, going back to the onside fund, you know, this idea of participatory grant making, you know, it's new, it may be in sport for development a bit, but it's not new in the women's fund spaces, like women's rights, women's funds have been doing this for a very long time. So it's kind of like pulling from different sectors um, and trying and seeing what might fit for sport for development, what might work, what might shift the needle a bit um, and help us do the work better is kind of what we're what we try to do a lot. So it's like, you know, playing in those all those different spaces, listening, learning, soaking it in, and then just experimenting. I think women win also is really good at just trying stuff out and taking risks and, yeah, being agile and understanding it might not work out. We pivot and shift, try something new. If it works, great. If not, we pivot again and have some really wonderful donors, funders who support that kind of risk taking. Um, and trust us enough to invest in that. And yeah, it's kind of just this nice ecosystem that um, works and supports everything. Quick break here with a special message from your host. This episode is being released in celebration of the United Nations recognized International Day of Sport for Development and Peace which takes place annually on April 6th. Each year, champions of the sport for development sector use this day to raise awareness of the incredible work that individuals and organizations are leading across the globe to leverage the potential power of sport and play to drive tangible impact and positive social change. I hope that listeners, whether an enthusiast, a skeptic, or a novice in this space, that you find the conversations I facilitate on the Inspira podcast to be informative and inspirational. If you enjoy this podcast, you would be a rock star if you went ahead and gave it a five-star review with a complimentary written sentence or two on Apple Podcasts or your chosen podcast platform. Enjoy listening and happy April 6th, everybody. That onside fund, which is just super interesting and really important. And I want to dig in a little bit more to that right now because you've mentioned something that has come up in a few of my podcast conversations about the challenges that a lot of grantees or practitioners face when seeking funding or when delivering their requirements after they've received a fund of some sort. And they might tell me, Erica, like, I feel like my hands are tied or I feel like I'm bogged down in paperwork when really the 
aspiration of this work is to be with the community, to serve people through sport in these really practical and tangible ways and to have these extra hoops to jump through or to complete based off of the funder's requirements is really tricky. And so it sounds like uh, you and the Onside Fund and just this concept of democratizing funding have really tried to strip away some of those barriers and make it a little bit less burdensome. Uh, is that what you would say? And maybe you could speak more to the the hopes that you all have and any positive impact you've seen so far. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Onside has been, I think, just a really fun exploration and really fascinating exploration of, yeah, just how trust-based philanthropy can really look like in practice. And again, I said that, you know, I said earlier, this isn't something like brand new to the world at all. Um, we really were pulling kind of from the women's rights, women's fund um, space and trying, you know, and experimenting to see what this would look like in the sport context um, and trying to support that movement. Um, and for us, it was really, yeah, trying to create and structure uh, a fund and funding mechanisms that really were decolonized, um, kind of feminist approaches to grant making, participatory, and, you know, kind of, again, women win as a facilitator, but really, you know, decisions, um, vision, direction, being led by grantees, by advisory committees and councils um, that were from the regions we were, you know, investing in. And then also, you know, a lot of it was um, educating funders or having dialogues with funders, uh, like you said, in the sport for development sector and in a lot of like aid spaces, you know, funders and donors are, you know, they still come in with, like you said, a very kind of structured budgeting process and reporting and mail process that is often, yeah, quite a lot of work for some, especially small grassroots organizations who don't have the staff. Um, language justice is often non-existent. Everything has to be in English from grant applications all the way through reporting. And that's a huge burden often on organizations in parts of the world where they don't have native English speakers on staff. Um, you know, and all, so all these things make it really difficult first to even apply for funding um, or not possible at all. And then the second one is like, yeah, difficult to even implement the program. Much of your time is spent on reporting on the management of the grant and management of the funder. So for us, it was really like, how can we create a different structure that allows these organizations, no matter how small they are, to really take, you know, do what they need to do, do what they do best, and then create a really collaborative approach to monitoring evaluation and learning that emphasizes learning questions and learning from one another and using, you know, and in a non-extractive way, helping organizations then use that same data and learning points to, to improve their programs. So it's kind of structured on those levels. It's like this participatory grant making mechanism that, um, you know, allows for a committee of grantees to actually choose who receives funding and, um, and who passes, it, it's language justice. So ensuring that applications are available in multiple languages, depending on the re regions we're focusing on. Educating funders to put money into a pooled fund. So that's the other thing is onsite is a pooled fund. It's not just one donor. It's many donors putting money into a pot of money that then Women Win facilitates and um, moves through that participatory process. Uh, which, you know, is, is a lot. A lot of times funders want their names attached to a specific project or program. And this is really trying to get funders and donors to step back from that a bit and be okay with being part of a collective sort of impact of funding approach. 
And then the other thing is, I guess, in a lot of places around the world, uh, collectives of individuals are doing incredible work. And if they're not registered um, as nonprofits in their country, which sometimes is hard if they're doing or addressing certain issues that are maybe illegal to address in that country, um, they have no access to funding almost. So our, yeah, the Onside Fund provides funding not only to registered NGOs, but also to unregistered organizations, to individuals, um, and yeah, basically to, to anyone uh, who has a, a project idea and, um, and is doing that work and it's completely unrestricted. So those organizations can use the money however they decide. The only um, sort of uh, requirements are that they join this community of onsite grantees and are part of sort of our um, MEL conversations, discussions and, and groups to ensure that the learnings get back to the community. Nicole, do you see this like unrestricted funding and pooled funding and these group decisions, all the really key pillars of what you just said that makes this work? Do you see that as a sustainable approach long term in light of what you think donors want and what you think recipients want? That's oh, a great question. Um, well, the one huge thing we learned um, is that this is not easy and it's a lot of work as well. Um, it's, you know, sometimes it is easier to have like uh, restricted, you know, funding, project plans, budgets, et cetera. Um, whereas this kind of more sort of decentralized participatory approach actually takes twice as long because you're coordinating across regions and um, cultures and languages. And so it's been a lot of work for us as an organization, incredible work, but it really does require us to kind of, and we have shifted in how we organize ourselves, what type of resources we need to be able to achieve this work. It looks very different. Like our team that runs the fund is very different maybe than the teams that are doing sort of the more traditional sport for development work um, within our portfolios. So I think to ensure sustainability internally, to be able to actually achieve this, like we had to shift quite a lot um, and really think through then how we um, raise funds for the fund, right? Um, and so I think we've seen lots of interest and appetite in um, from funders and donors to put money into pooled funds like this. So we definitely think that there is um, lots of opportunities, lots of people, um, organizations, foundations are coming to us asking how they can be involved, um, how it works, uh, wanting to learn more. We hold um, funder dialogues, which are, um, yeah, opportunities virtually to connect with um, funders who are providing money into the pooled fund, but also other funders who might be interested in doing so and just having conversations with grantees and funders together in the same space, which is really um, interesting. The grantees become real. It's not like some organization on a piece of paper for them. Uh, yeah, we've seen a lot of interest from um, corporates as well, corporate funding in this space, um, which tends to be a bit more flexible sometimes as well. And I think for the grantees, and again, we're we're funding through this, they're small grant sizes. They're about 2,500 to 10,000 US dollars, more or less. Um, so it really is targeting uh, smaller organizations. I, you know, our um, Kind of criteria is organizations that uh, bring in under a hundred thousand dollars annually. So we're you know really focusing on that small, small grassroots level, and um, it's you know it's a three year cycle, a three year funding cycle. So the organizations get renewal fundings for three years, and then um, we work with them to figure out what is the sustainability of their work. We we don't ever want to become the only funding 
that an organization has. That's definitely not our goal here. It's really to support and create and support organizations to become sustainable. And hopefully this is that pathway for them if it is. Um, but yeah, I think I, I, it is sustainable. I think it's just a matter of organizing ourselves as an organization differently and how we approach it, fundraising differently, um, a very different way of uh, fundraising for us. And yeah, just communicating the importance of shifting to this. It really is for us, we think the best way to do this work and trying to make that case, I think globally at the international level is, is really important. Well, thanks for answering that one. I know that was another tough one that I threw your way. And I asked that not because I don't think it's sustainable or I don't think it's a good idea. Quite the opposite. I just, yeah, I'm grateful that you shared some of those challenges and probably hinted why others haven't done that yet because it can be such a lift and because there's so much coordination that needs to take place for it to really work in the way that you're hoping it works. Um, and I believe there's another piece of onside around gaming and esports. Could you talk a little bit more about why that has been a focus? And maybe if I don't want you to unnecessarily convince people, but do you think that others should be taking an interest kind of in this sport for development sector around that technology piece or gaming, uh, regardless of gender? Yes, absolutely. Everyone should pay attention. Um, <laughs> Yeah, for so gaming for us in esports has been a really interesting and fascinating exploration as well. I think uh, pre-COVID we started talking about it internally at Women Win a bit, just because we saw how um, fast and how quickly uh, gaming and gaming culture and esports was growing, and you know realizing also too, and this is this is globally and in some places more so than others, and clearly the digital divide impacts uh, girls and young women and and women in general. Um, uh, quite deeply, their access to technology, um, et cetera. But regardless, there there is this online space that young people, especially, are living in living in these days. Um, you know, and a lot of their lives are online. And you know, the harassment, a lot of the things that women and girls experience in the real world in real life, um, they're also experiencing in a lot of different ways online. And in some senses, it's even more isolating and brutal um, because you're often so isolated despite being so connected um, virtually. Right. So, you know, we were kind of looking at like this is important to pay attention to. If we're going to talk about sport and um, and physical sports spaces, what about these online spaces where a lot of these girls and women are spending equally, if not more time in than on the sport pitch? Um, and how can we you're we're missing up an opportunity, right? If we're only addressing the sport pitch and not um, these other spaces that they work in and play in. So we started thinking about it and then COVID, you know, but just really exploring. We're by no means experts in gaming or esports. I, you know, none of us are even like gamers necessarily <laughs> apart from playing when we were like young Super Mario or whatever. Um, but uh, we started like really looking into it when COVID hit, because I think for everyone, it was just a huge wake up call to a, the, yeah, the digital divide and access to technology, but also just how important technology and the internet and just that global community was to everyone's mental health, to everyone staying connected, to getting information, et cetera. I think COVID really highlighted that. Um, and so we started, you know, the way we kind of start all things is like, who do we talk to who knows more about this than we do and can help us understand? And so we just had like tons of amazing conversations with, you know, experts in the space, people who were gamers, esport athletes, esport organizations, um, influencers, uh, yeah, 
um, gaming broadcasters. I mean, we learned so much. I could go on about the whole esports and gaming ecosystem that I never knew about, but um, and it was a fascinating, amazing conversations. And basically, we got to a place where we we're like, okay, what you know, what could women win do? What's our value add? What would we add to this space that could support gender justice? Um, and, you know, eventually it boiled down to how can we use our onside fund, which we had at that point set up and running? Could that be our entryway into gaming is to create an on a sub fund with an onside, um, a call for proposals, specifically applicants that focused on gaming and esports and gender justice. Um, so that's what we did. We um, put out a call to create kind of a cohort of grantees. And we were um, and are now because the, the we have the cohort, um, really incredible organizations. Uh, using this as a space to learn from them, to help them guide us in what, you know, is the future of gender equity, inclusion in gaming, um, guide us in terms of what we can do, um, you know, what type of funding is important. One thing we learned, which was really interesting and that, you know, we're not really doing an on-site fund in general yet, but is that in the gaming ecosystem, social enterprises are really important um, as part of that ecosystem. And these are like indie game developers who are creating characters that reflect you know, trans characters and LGBTQ represented characters, also, you know, as well as women um, and girl characters who just they don't exist um, so much in, in our games. So it's like those types of like, yeah, game designers, um, media producers, it, like influencers in gaming are big on social media. Yeah, so it's just a different ecosystem. So we really had to adjust in terms of like who is receiving this funding, who can apply um, and how do we support how do we support those spaces? It's really exciting for us. We have learned so much. Um, there's quite a lot of work to do, and there are a lot of incredible organizations doing really incredible work in the space. And we just hope to, yeah, continue um, build out. It's a bit of, of a different fundraising pool, I would say. Um, you know, so we're still trying to figure out uh, how to to grow that sub fund and and do um, and do deeper work there. But yeah, it's been it's been a really interesting journey. Hmm. Wow, that's really cool around the game design and those different characters and just representation, those different pieces. That sounds amazing. Nicole, I'm, I'm also wondering what you've learned uh, specifically through your work, what you've learned about how to use sport as an effective pathway to empower girls and women around the world. What have I learned? Um, I mean... I think just I've learned that joy is so important um, and the joy of sport uh, is so beautiful and oftentimes um, overlooked uh, or not deemed important enough. Um, you know, I know when we started out this work and for me personally, as I was getting deeper into sport for development, you do get caught up in like log frames and um, Mel impact frameworks and trying to figure out like, what's the, you know, qu quantitative uh, results of this program and, you know, what, what has the girl, the young woman learned about rights? And um, I don't know, there, it, you can get very much deep into this, like, there needs to be this greater impact, which absolutely, I mean, there's so much potential for impact. But the pure joy of just being able to go out and play and move your body um, and not feel self-conscious, but really feel joy and freedom and release in that movement it's, it's so beautiful. And, you know, and some of the best moments of my life have really been to go out into the field and um, have the honor of experiencing that with other young women and girls in some of these communities. 
I mean, nothing can beat that, I think. And being able to participate with them um, in that is just so beautiful. So I think, yeah, of all the things I've learned is to not forget just how much joy this can bring to people um, and trying to support and create and facilitate those spaces so that more women and girls can can feel that joy and freedom and release. Mm, I love that. I love that. In terms of the sector, are there any hopes that you have for the sport for development sector uh, in terms of maybe those gaps that you and women win have seen to continue to exist and how we can fill those gaps? There's been so much progress in the sector since um, the early days where this was starting to become a topic, I, you know, you know, and you hope in nonprofit work and in the social you know, social justice work, like you're really working to like make yourself not needed anymore, right? That's like the end goal is like, we want a world where women win doesn't have to exist or, other, you know, these organizations don't have to exist. Um, and I think, yeah, so many incredible programs, projects and other funders and other global organizations have started doing such wonderful deep gender work. Um, as You know, that there's just been so much progress, I think, um, and so many things to highlight, so many good things to highlight, uh, across the the world. I think in terms of what's next, I mean, I think there still is uh, quite a lot of us and women win included here who are working from the global north, who are working with staff who are largely from the global north. Um, and I think really looking deeply at our sector and thinking about, yeah, how do we put more leadership, decision-making and power into the hands of the communities that these programs and projects are impacting, how do we shift that power? How do we keep shifting that power and keep um, knowing our place and, and supporting others to lead um, and have their voices be elevated um, and make those decisions, I think is really important. And the sector is definitely moving there as well, I think. But that I, I would say um, from Women Win's perspective, and again, I'm including us in this as well, um, you know, we all just need to do a better, I think, job of of making that happen and facilitating that to happen. Um, and that it goes everything from like funding to program design to the development of tools, um, to networks, to alliances, uh, all of that. And yeah, as a funder in the space, I think for us too is really um, kind of trying to, yeah, transform to like through our onside fund, things like that, really trying to transform the way money flows um, so that the power again, does not lie with us or funders, but really with the organizations on the ground telling us what, we need to focus on um, and support. So I think that would be, yeah, that would be one place where I really see um, progress happening, but more more work to be done for sure. Would you say what you just talked about are examples of decolonizing the sector in terms of like definitions? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, decolonizing um, and uh, yeah, definitely, you know, and for us, it's, it's really about being more participatory and shifting power. Um, you know, women, women had the opportunity and the privilege of going through kind of like a sort of self-reflective journey around decolonization during COVID. We had an incredible external facilitator come in and help us understand what, you know, cause decolonizing is, it decolonizes a big word. It, um, yeah and so many definitions of what it could look like. And so for us really understanding what that meant internally in terms of our processes, our hiring processes, our process, you know, our structure, our staffing, our approach, et cetera. And then also how we work with partners, um, you know, what, what does that look like and how do we um, reflect on that? So that was really valuable and really incredible. And I think, um, yeah, I think it's really important for us to continue. It's a journey. There's never an end to it. 
Um, so we're by no means at any the end of that journey, but I think it's a really important journey for all organizations in this space to begin if they haven't. Now that we know more about our guest's career journey, the rest of our conversation will allow us to have some fun and get to know our guest on a personal level through some rapid fire questions. We'll then start to wrap up with pointed questions focused on advice and how our listeners can transform interest into action. Enjoy the rest of the conversation. Nicole, if you and your family could live anywhere in the world for a year, where might you choose? Oh, that's a great question. I think I would choose uh, somewhere on the coast uh, in Morocco. It's actually where my um, most of my, my family is from, my husband and his side of the family is from. And I used to live there for 10 years in Morocco and I would, I haven't been back in quite a while. I went back for a little bit last summer. Um, but I haven't been back like truly connected back with the country in quite a while. And I really, really miss it. The incredible people, um, the culture. And so I would love if we could just go back for a year and just soak it all up again somewhere on the coast and I need (laughs) sun and warm weather. So it's gotta be somewhere warm by the sea, but yeah. (laughs) We'll manifest that. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's out there. Do you have a guilty pleasure? Chocolate, desserts, anything <laughs> sweet. Always. I such a sweet tooth. Mm-hmm. Well, any hobbies we haven't talked about? Yeah, I have really started uh, trying to plant things um, that I've always wanted to like grow a garden uh, and do like more kind of, yeah, planting of things and growing of things in my backyard. We finally uh, moved into a house a couple of years ago that has a backyard. Uh, which is exciting. And so I, and I just had a, a, I have a toddler now. I had a daughter a year and a half ago, just, it wasn't just, it was a year and a half ago, (laughs) but um, she's now old enough where she can kind of like help and, you know, Mm -hmm. tumble along. And so, yeah, we, we started planting stuff and try to do something every week, uh, get something in the ground and see it grow. So nice. Nice. Thinking about advice now, thinking about the wisdom that you have amassed over your career, um, what might you say to someone who really wants to break into sport for development and peace, but they just don't know how? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I guess my journey into it was really uh, kind of, I meandered into it. It wasn't like, this is what I want to do and I'm going to get there. It was really organic, which you know, I'm very lucky to have gone down that journey organically. Um, so I guess, and so my advice would be just like, stay open to as many opportunities and possibilities that you can. And one of the most, and I think the reason, you know, I, I fell in love with this, the sector and the work was because I got to travel, you know, being an, an American and, um, having a certain experience of, of sport, um, you know, was one perspective. But as soon as I got to Morocco and then got the incredible privilege and honor of traveling to other communities and seeing it, it just changed my perspective and outlook, you know, a thousand times. So I would say like, you know, let even if you can't maybe find a job right away in the space, if there's somewhere where you can go to volunteer or support um, in some other way or travel to go see, you know, this work happening in other parts of the world, if you're from North America or Europe, 
Um, or even in your own communities, there's so much incredible work happening here in the United States and for sport and development, right? Or you're, but just go and see the programs, be a coach, be, you know, I don't know, carry equipment, like whatever it is, like feel the joy of that work um, in the field, I think is like the advice I could give. Cause that really is where, where it all begins and and where it all should end. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's super important to have that physical and practical experience if you have that opportunity whether it's in your backyard or your community like you said or somewhere else um and a follow-up question to that i know that women win often is looking for people to join their team whether that's on a short term or consultant basis or something permanent do you have any tips for anyone who is applying to women win or other organizations in the space really on how they can stand out in that job application process yeah, that's a great question. And I think, yeah, I think every organization, you know, obviously has their, yeah, what they're looking for based on the the profile or the role. I think for women win, what we often look for are people who really can bring value, not just from like a get the work done perspective, but from a, you know, your background perspective, your experiences, um, having people, like I said, with different experiences and different sectors, lang different languages is really important for us because we work with such a global community that for us, the, the language justice piece, like we really want to be able to communicate with grantees and organizations in their native languages when possible. It's just, it's so much richer and you build trust um, more quickly. So languages, experience, um, you know, we've really moved away from, you know, requiring lots of education or master's degrees and things like that for us. Like what's really valuable often is work experience and where have you been able to, um, yeah, to work and test out your skills. It's not always, do you have that master's degree or do you have the right degree from the right place, I think. And just openness to learn. Um, you know, Women Win really considers themselves a learning organization. So that willingness to accept that you don't know everything and that you want to learn and you have that mentality and ethos about you and you want to soak up everything um, and you're there to serve, I think, uh, from a like a servant leadership perspective is really important for us. So at least for us, that's what we're kind of looking for. And, and people all over the world. We've just started, you know, most of our team used to be in the Netherlands. We have a couple people here in the U.S., but we're really starting to um, hire in other regions of the world that are a lot closer to where we're working, uh, whether it's Africa, Latin America, um, Southern Africa, uh, all over now. We have people um, in different places who are part of the, the team, but um, able to work from home. Well, I'm going away from this conversation with lots of cool terms, and I know the meaning is much more important than the term, but obviously we've got democratizing philanthropy, we've got decolonizing the sector, and language justice. I'm really going to try to use that at some point because I like that a lot. And it's like deeper than inclusion, right? It's justice. So I like that a lot. Um, well, Nicole, how can our audience support you or your work moving forward? Great question. Um, yeah, just kind of take a look at what we do and spread the message. You know, we oftentimes have a lot of, um, I mean, we have a lot of job opportunities and consulting opportunities that come up. So, you know, spread those in your networks. Uh, you know, we like to, to spread them as widely as possible. Um, and get the right person there, obviously. And then we also have, yeah, a lot of um, the onside fund puts out calls for proposals. So spreading those opportunities to organizations and people in the field um, would be amazing.
letting us know what you're doing. Again, we'd love to be connected to people, individuals, institutions, organizations, and know what they're doing and, and um, what they're learning. So please reach out to us and, and share with what, you know, what you're doing. Well, my final question that I get excited to ask all of my amazing guests is who or what inspires you? This is going to sound just really corny. So my toddler inspires me. She's one and a half and it's this really incredible age where just everything is the most fascinating thing in the world to her. She'll like just be walking down the pathway to, you know, from our door to the car. And it'll take her like 30 minutes because she stops and like inspects every shell or like bug that's crawling across the pavement. And I often live my life very quickly. I move from thing to thing super fast. I'm always late. I um, am rushing. I like to do four things at once. And she's really inspired me to stop and slow down. And if anyone knows anything about toddlers, if you try to make them move faster than they want to move, um, you're in for a whole world of, of tantrums and craziness. So yeah, it's, she's just inspired me to kind of take this beginner's mindset on things and to really question, you know, things that I'm doing in my own work, in my own life, to really examine it with like fresh eyes and a fresh perspective, which is really hard. We get so ingrained in our perspectives, so ingrained in our ideas and attitudes and forget that like that beginner's mindset is so valuable and so important. And yeah, I think important in terms of connecting with one another in a very divided world right now. Um, being in the U.S., it's it's quite frightening um, just how much hatred and animosity there are for for people we think are the other. Um, so I yeah, I try to really like get grounded in this idea of like beginner's mindset. Stop, breathe, take a look at what's around you, and see things with a new perspective, and try to connect that way with people. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Inspira podcast with Erica Mueller Chen. I really hope you enjoyed the episode and found it useful. Be sure to check out the show notes for links and resources. Specifically, my link tree is there with tons of awesome information. Feel inspired to take action today? I've got three action steps you can take right now because you know your girl likes calls to action and the number three. So here goes. Number one. Sign up for my mailing list by adding your email address. Number two, check out my global resource hub and send it to someone in the sector who may be interested. Number three, buy me a coffee. Or if you know me, this will actually be a hot cocoa. Your support will help make sure this passion project prospers. All of these links are available by visiting my link tree. Until next time, stay inspired. Thank you.